0: In the early 70s, my father worked in a small radio station in Santiago, one of the islands of Cape Verde, a small Atlantic archipelago off the west coast of Africa. The stories he shares about that time are of a world where information went much slower and where, as a medium, radio was very close to the listeners, mainly through snail mail. And one of the segments I've always found interesting and touching had to do with the fact that Cape Verde is composed of small islands where there's a lot of emigration, historically. He would receive letters from people wanting to reach their loved ones who were on a ship crossing the ocean, most often to North America, or on a commercial or fishing boat. And the radio waves would bring a favorite or meaningful piece of music across the distance to those who were far away. My thinking is that so many of us move away from home, from friends, often across continents to do our PhD and become young researchers. And I wanted to offer that type of slow audio messaging to the listeners of Papa PhD. To someone you left behind, to someone you're temporarily separated from, to parents and friends, from parents and friends, or even to your old lab mates. It can even be a message you'll be sending through time five years ago or ten years ago to yourself. And my role is simply to read it in your name or anonymously on Papa PhD. So if you have a message, a poem, a short composition, always in the context of the PhD, send it to me to david at papaphd.com and it'll be my pleasure to read it in a future episode. The goal of this segment, which I will call the PhD Grams, is simply to give voice to those words that are sometimes hard to say, to those conversations that are sometimes hard to have, and to build relationships and community amongst the listeners who tune in week after week. If you follow Papa PhD on Facebook you can actually leave me an audio message on Messenger and let me know if you allow me to use it as is on the podcast. And that's it. It's that easy. I'm really, really looking forward to reading my first PhD-gram. And now, for this week's interview. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Papa PhD. Today on the show... I bring you a conversation around the concept of effective altruism and about a nonprofit offering support, coaching, and community to undergrad and graduate researchers based on this concept. With me, you'll hear Isabel Phillips, project manager, and Dev Sachdev, head coach of Effective Thesis. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendes, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome to this new episode of Papa PhD. Today I have with me Isabel Phillips and Dev Sachdev of Effective Thesis. Effective Thesis is an international nonprofit providing free guidance to students, undergraduate to PhD, who want to begin research careers that significantly improve the world. They believe in the power of academia to do good and are passionate about connecting and inspiring researchers to pick an impactful field of study. Dev, Isabel, it's really a pleasure to have you here today, and uh, and to to talk about your project uh, here on Papa PhD. Welcome. Thanks, David.
1: It's really a pleasure to be here as well. Really excited to be able to um, share some thoughts and talk to everyone, especially you.
0: And uh, Isabel, uh, welcome too. And Isabel has been the one I've been talking with. Uh, for for a little while, so welcome to Papa PhD. Yeah,
2: thanks for thanks for having us. <laughs> We're excited.
0: So, um, actually, so just ha- just so people know, before we go into effective thesis, what's behind it, the principles, I'm really eager to talk about uh, effective altruism uh, because just the term inspire it's it's inspiring to me, and I'd like to learn a little bit more about how you implement it and how and how uh, it's part of your mission but um can you just very quickly um, um maybe starting with isabel present yourselves to to the listeners
2: hi everyone uh i'm isabel phillips i'm the co-project manager of effective thesis um and yeah it's a it's a great project um And yeah, basically, we're just trying to spread the word uh, and help more students have meaningful research careers that uh, improve the world. Um, And yeah, I've been into effective altruism for about five years now. So yeah, pretty dedicated.
1: Very cool. Dev? Hi, everyone. I am the head of coaching at Effective Thesis. I've been um, volunteering and then working at Effective Thesis for about a year now, so it's been a while, and I've known and been learning slash practicing effective altruism for about five years as well now. So, okay, uh, it's been a while.
0: <laughs> how come I've just now heard about effective altruism, and uh, it's uh, and and actually, can you either either of you uh, talk a little bit about the principle and about how how it's maybe inspired you and how you, you got into this? Uh, this space of working in in the, in this context of effective altruism.
2: Um, yeah. So, I mean, effective altruism, uh, isn't like, it's like relatively a small movement. So I guess maybe that's why you haven't heard of it. Um, how I got into it was, um, I was, I was really interested in how I could use my time on this earth to make the world a better place. And it sort of came from those questions and some sort of Googling and talking, uh, yeah,
1: is that a fair representation, Dev? Yeah, I think so. Like, um, you usually people who find it have put in some sort of effort in the first place, I think, yeah, um, when it's a small movement. Un- but unlike you, I was lucky. I think I had, like, the chance to learn about the ideas in a philosophy class in uni. So that was quite helpful. Um, and I just... Uh, Was trying to make an impact through healthcare initiatives, and um, was studying a health philosophy class, and we read a few books written by the founders of the effective altruism movement,
0: and just sort of got the ball rolling in my end. Yeah. Okay, and you know, here clearly you've just mentioned impact, Dev, and uh, it's in the the introduction I gave to effective. Thesis, you talk about inspiring researchers to pick an impactful field of study, and the, in the name effective altruism, clearly this question of impact, of uh, uh, of making things happen that change uh, the world for the better, it seems to me that it's it's you know part and parcel, and maybe actually a definition of of the movement. But can you, for those who don't who haven't read anything about it, can you uh, quickly? summarize what effective altruism is the movement and the and the concept uh,
1: i think i'll give this a try and isabel can fill in the gaps that should work uh better so um it it is a relatively small movement that's growing quite large now uh the movement is based on the idea that when you are giving money to charities we want to ensure that these charities are creating the most impact possible and the way you measure impact is how many lives can one save but now that's where it started and it's moved into not just how you give money but into how you practice how you run a charity how you run your research how you find the ways to create impact in different various ways and um, you measure that impact in the number of lives you can save rather than some sort of monetary input. And I think one of my favorite analogies that really convinced me when I started was if I'm investing into a stock portfolio or something like that, I'm going to be looking at how much profit can that company yield for me at the end of the year or at the end of my investment. And that's how I like value or how I choose to invest somewhere because I'm going to do that analysis. I'm going to see how much impact that investment has in my bank account. So why is it that when I give, why am I not looking at how much impact it can have in saving the world? And so like that sort of logic is what got me started. And I carried it out in, in the sense that when we're doing research, it's the same questions. If you're going to be putting that significant amount of effort into a phd which as you know and you will say it's not insignificant it's no it's it's not (laughs) yeah so why not try to yield the most amount of impact you can from it Mm -hmm. in addition Mm -hmm. to all of the other benefits you can have from it and also make those struggles slightly more worth it that struggle Mm -hmm. In a PhD, is quite difficult, and we acknowledge that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of
0: course. And this, this is funny because you're kind of giving me a segue for the the question that was coming with. And I, and now I see the line the, that I was looking for, which is, you know, how how uh, effective thesis came about, and all you almost said it there. But can you talk a little bit about the the origin story of effective thesis, how it started, and why?
2: <laughs> yeah so actually so unfortunately David the founder isn't here so I think back in around 2016 2017 uh David sort of adheres to the ideas of effective altruism I just want to also quickly add that um it's not just about the like it's about the lives you can save but we also care about other things like expanding the moral circle to include like not just human lives but animal lives and future lives and like just because something isn't necessarily life saving doesn't mean we don't value it within the movement it's just like a sort of proxy measure just wanted to add that in case listeners weren't familiar and felt i don't know put off around <laughs> 2017 david started basically uh he sort of realized that uh the thesis is something is an area where people put a lot of time in um but don't necessarily like think beforehand about oh, i'm going to spend all this time working on something like how can i make sure it improves the world so he sort of just started doing Ad hoc coaching himself, and it sort of grew and grew, and then he started getting volunteer coaches. And then in June last year, I joined the project, um, and we've been sort of growing quite a lot since then.
0: It's interesting because uh, I, I also said at the beginning that you coach people and you help people, people starting from undergrad and going up to the PhD. And so I'd be curious. Let, let's just let's just walk through what the 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 coachee journey is once they get in touch with uh, effective theses, because right now we've been talking about, you know, high concepts such as, uh, you know, uh, effective altruism. But if someone right now is thinking, you know, is in their undergrad thinking of, oh, what should I do for my master's? Or in their master's thinking, what should I do for my thesis? What are the steps to reaching out to you guys? And and what's the experience they can expect? What help can they expect to get from getting in touch with effective thesis
1: great question, uh, David. I think there's a lot of layers to that question um, so um, maybe I'd start with addressing that, of course, what stage do you think you should start applying for coaching an effective thesis, and then what can you expect from getting from coaching an effective thesis? so let's say like you're right, so you can start at the undergrad level so. There's two situations where you should apply for coaching at effective thesis if you're an undergrad. A is if you're doing an undergrad research thesis. Some universities in the world have an honors program or thesis requirement in their undergrads already. So that's already a point where you can start thinking about how you can test your fit for certain research and um, what should you try out and what resources to find. And that's where we can come in and help with that as coaches. Then, the next point is what you mentioned already, which is if you're an undergrad looking towards doing a master's, what steps should you take what fo- topics should you focus on? Should you be doing a master's and how should you be doing it and you can apply for coaching, and we can start to like work through those questions with you and try to figure out what should be your research focus within your masters and how that can prepare you for your like future research career and when i I specify research career because it doesn't mean that you have to go off and do a PhD. That's not what we are advocating for. What we are trying to say is that we want to ensure that when you do research, regardless of whether it's through a PhD or through another uh, method, which is available, there are those options Then, how can you work through to make yourself the best fit and learn more about areas that can create a, an impact? And then the next few levels are like, if you're doing your thesis in your master's or you're finishing your thesis and you're thinking about starting a PhD. So there's several points or if you've started a PhD already. And so there's several points where you can apply for coaching and should apply for coaching. But like you said, your listeners will be probably be thinking, why should I apply for coaching? What value do I get from it? And so this is what I'm going to try to uh, answer now, I guess. Um, <laughs> the first uh, value that you have As someone who is thinking about doing research somewhere, coming to coaching is, you have someone who's already gone through a research path, A, who already knows what the typical questions are that you will need to address for your research career, what are the starting resources you need to enter a certain topic, and who can connect you with an expert in the area that can lead you to ask for more specific questions. So these are like just the basic value adds that you can get from coaching. But now we also have other services that can build on that. And those services are our Opportunity Network, which uh, Isabel manages. So I will let her talk a little bit about that and then I'll take over for the other services again, I guess. Yeah.
0: (laughs) What's this about the Opportunity Network?
2: Um, It's it's mainly just a database and a newsletter um, that we send to uh, interested students of opportunities such as Internships, conferences, uh, calls for papers, funding opportunities—that kind of thing—that might help them in their research career. uh So we just sort of send them to students, sort of uh, twice a month, So sort of like a hand-picked mm-hmm. selection of opportunities that they should apply for.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very cool. And now a question that that's arising from what you just said, and knowing that you uh, are not working in an office at you know in the same city and not even in the same country. Uh, i'm I'm sure uh the the question is so can anyone from any country who's is going through university reach out to effective thesis
2: yes please
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay very very cool so and and another follow-up question is is then um is then a process of getting because now of course well now with covid uh, a lot of things are happening virtually uh, but i wonder whether um, your the, the services that you offer from you know by design are offered virtually or whether uh, people who are in different places can actually event, you know uh, meet up with coaches how how does that work actually virtual versus in person You know how how do how do things go usually? You know, forgetting that we're in COVID and that there's a lot of that that everything is probably virtual today.
1: Yeah, so I think everything is virtual at the moment. But I think even before COVID, so when the project started, it was still quite virtual as well. Given that the coaches and the students are rarely in the same location, we have students applying from all over the world. I did, I did have i did have a couple of uh, i did have a couple of students who i actually managed to meet in person when i moved here to edinburgh uh that was interesting but it's exceptional a, yeah it was interesting and exceptional and i think uh there are some advantages to just having it virtual is that the students have the chance to make notes if they want to and i have the chance mm-hmm. to make notes whereas in person you don't have that chance but mm-hmm. then you can have a lot more of a trusting conversation in person so of course there's give and takes there but i think virtual has worked pretty well and Mm -hmm. i think can work well continuing and moving forward as well Mm -hmm. and gives us the chance to uh, connect with more people and maybe that's a good thing of covid is everyone has suddenly really gotten used to Mm -hmm. getting onto google meet meetings in a jiffy and yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) everyone now has a webcam and is a kind of a corner of the of their home that's set up to to be on camera for sure exactly <laughs> uh, now a uh, follow-up question uh, uh, you know because we've been talking about the students we've talked about where they may come from and and international is is what you what you're telling me which is which is great uh but now uh, my question to you is given your experience working with them can you <clears throat> and also thinking of people who are listening and, and who still want to know a little bit better what they can Get what help they can get uh, from effective thesis. What are questions or or issues that students mostly arrive to you with that you help them with? Like, what what are their um what what are typical problems that they face and that you help them with? Good question.
1: There, um, I think I'd start with undergrads. Undergrad students will start to have questions about. Uh, you know when you're an undergrad and you're really enthusiastic you're you're starting you're trying to decide a project based completely on impact and rather not just trying to balance on how you can test your research fit for a career at the same time so we try to bring that balance so that they don't get like overwhelmed by a topic by trying to focus on the impact and try to balance it in a way that um, they're still trying to have a long-term impact that is useful for them and still balancing their recent research careers. When you're thinking about a master's student, sometimes the biggest thing is that they've just done a master's, they know a certain topic really well, and then they're trying to decide between a few topics or trying to improve their research questions slightly more so that when they apply for a PhD proposal, they need that level of expertise just to create that jump or sometimes just some advice on how to approach a supervisor or what can they expect from a supervisor and so we've sort of created a few more resources specific to that as well just so that our students can like get a chance to have a holistic uh, support system while trying to reach their career goals or research career goals i would say and When you reach the PhD level, one would think and one would expect, and rightly so, that the PhD students already have quite a bit of a familiarity with the topics they're starting to research. But then sometimes they're looking for more people in the same community as them who are trying to research similar topics and trying to build those connections to build their own career and also just to have some support because of course you struggle a lot during your phd thinking you're all alone working on this topic and so we have our community platform that's sort of almost finalized we run it on facebook right now but we're moving to a better platform for that so you can like really make those connections and as coaches we also try to make those personal connections between peers and also between experts and the students so that they have that support in various different ways. And so there are several, these are the common questions, but sometimes you have really unique ones as well. So Of course,
0: of course, yeah. in a case by case. Yeah, th- this this makes sense. And uh, it feels to me that, um, yeah, effective thesis, and especially if there's a community, would be particularly beneficial and useful to um to f- to first generation students who are really at a loss uh, or who have no no point of orientation at all when they jump into the university world then when you get to the phd well i think even if you know even if you had a very good masters phd is so different that uh, you know anyone anyone going into a phd needs help one question is: the people who reach out to you and the people that that you coach—is it independently of the domain, uh, their domain of research? It could be life sciences, it could be hard uh, sciences, it could be uh, social sciences. Uh, anyone who wants to become a researcher can benefit of uh, what Effective Thesis offers.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um, basically, um, yeah. Anybody who is going to be writing a thesis can come and get advice. Obviously there's certain fields where we might have better connections or like know a bit more. But um yeah we take, you know, a huge range of students from psychology students to economics students to physics students to math students to, you know, international relations students. Um everyone can benefit from uh, thinking about how to have more impact with their research. <laughs> and also everyone can benefit from like a sounding board and some support. So yeah. Um I think that's I think that's a fair reflection. Is that right, Dev?
1: Yeah. We 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 try to like support as interdisciplinary trans transdisciplinary work or research as possible. So, uh, the more disciplines they come from, the better. I think, <laughs> yeah.
0: And then I imagine also that you end up having alumni from from uh, you know the people who end up graduating. Is there also feedback from them, or are they do they stay as members of the community? Do they maybe come back to coach? Is there is that something that happens?
1: Yes. um, I'm personally, I'm not an alumni, but uh, I'm doing my PhD right now. Uh, so, uh, but we have one coach who is an alumni, alumni and a previous coach who was also an alumni, but uh, that previous coach has like sort of taken a short-term break and will come back soon. So we've got that. And yeah, and we've had some repeat applications as well. So we've had students who uh, did coaching for their undergrad and came back for their masters and similarly did coaching for their masters and now are thinking about phds and have come back to have more advice yeah
0: now one of one question that i have is and this again changes with the domains i but if i just go back to my phd it was in cell biology i had to spend a lot of time at the lab and what's the investment again if someone is listening and thinking oh this might be interesting for me but i don't know if i have the time how does it work like how do you integrate uh, effective thesis into your day-to-day routine of your masters or your phd how does that work in terms of schedule
1: and that's a question though i think i've not actually addressed this in a previous sort of talk before so i like this question a lot um We are quite flexible in terms of our meeting times usually. So our coaches will have sort of a calendly or way for students to book a time that works. And sometimes students find that that time doesn't work for them so they can easily reschedule. There's no sort of deadline when you have to schedule with us for. So sometimes if students have a busy exam period, then they'll set a meeting a month in advance or something or... uh, sometimes and then the call itself is about 30 minutes long and then after that you have we'll send you resources and everything relevant that you need at the moment for you to sort of keep and do as you go along with your work and research and balance it out and then our coaches will try to keep in touch with you once every couple of months to see how everything is going and see if there's anything else Uh, sometimes there's another call that happens because sometimes students want to touch base again or sometimes we just touch base over email at that point so it's relatively low effort to just keep in touch through a small or short email and we just continue growing that way so uh, a nice case was there was a student who she sort of started to get in touch again after like three or four months when there was an opportunity that we sent towards her and it came right at the time where she was doing PhD proposals as well. So She sort of followed the structure that we told her to follow. And she got funding from an external source and PhD funding at the same time. And that was a really cool case. And I think it was one of the cases I had done three months into my volunteer coaching. So that was quite nice to see that. Yeah. So Relatively low effort on our end and relatively low effort on their end to create a large impact. I guess, yeah.
0: As of yet, from what you're saying, it to me it sounds like a, a no-brainer that <laughs> that people should be should be adhering to effective theses because um, it's free. It's uh, it, it's not uh, you know the the barrier to uh, to you know to Im- to getting implicated into the the process is not not high um now maybe one thing we can we can talk about is more of the because you talked about different resources right you talked about experts how does that work you know because and there's a there's a supervisor network there's an expert network you know can one of you talk about that what what that actually means and how they differ
2: yeah so the um and correct me if i go off track here dev (laughs) um so the Experts Network is basically like a list of people in our prioritised research directions. So sort of key research questions we think are pretty important to the world. And this is sort of like a list of people who have said they're willing to be contacted by our students to uh, maybe provide advice or feedback, things like that. And then we also have a supervisor network of people who are working in the fields, uh, working in fields that our students might be interested in. And these people we don't have a personal connection to but it can help students, particularly from countries where perhaps there's like less research uh, activity going on, sort of figure out who they need to be getting in touch with and know where to start. Is that a fair reflection, Dev?
1: Yeah, um, but just to add, I would say the supervisor network is also for master students who are looking to find supervisors to supervise their thesis or PhD uh, applications. So one thing we noticed was during our coaching was that sometimes students who are interested in the research directions that we are like uh, talking about or discussing with them or introducing them to, they find it difficult to find supervisors who are willing to formally supervise students. And this sort of supervisor network bridges two problems, really. First is the problem of students not being able to find the relevant supervisor in that particular research. It's it's a huge pool of the world out there. Like you just get overwhelmed by the number of people. And so this sort of starts to help narrow it down a little bit and help you find the most relevant one. And on the other hand, these supervisors who are interested in these specific areas, even though we don't have a personal connection with them, they are always also on the look for potential students to supervise. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. part of their uh, role as professors to supervise students. And so they want to have students who are interested in specific Ideas that we are also proposing. So it's sort of like a good place of match there. And that's what it covers. And so that's just an addition to what Izzy said, Isabel said, sorry.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so it, it seems to me that, that you you know, what you offer is pretty complete because it's not only personal coaching, it's not only a community. And I, I don't, I don't know uh, how much, um, how active it is or how dynamic you you guys are able to make it because i know for sure that community management takes takes time it's work <laughs> but um, and but now this database of uh, of uh, supervisors which I, I I would have loved to have that when I was you know, when I was starting I, saw, I I went into a PhD program and then uh, after for, uh, after year one they asked us okay now choose where you want to go do your if I had had uh, th- effective thesis it would have been much simpler <laughs> process and much you know less daunting in a way uh, but it, it's very 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 cool now, one of one of the um, things that that uh, I'd like to take out of this conversation again to help people who are listening or or who are watching, kind of envision what working with you guys can can be, and I, I think we already have a good picture because I think we've talked about. The, the, there's a, a couple of things that we need to talk still, but one of the things I I wanted to ask is um, so 2017. Um, it's been five years, so there's a lot of, you know, the the alumni database must be growing, and uh, you must have feedback from them. And I wonder what uh, from their feedback, what's the thing that they they mentioned that's that's been the most useful to them? What's that feedback look like? What's what? Where do they come back and say, "I loved my time uh, working with effective thesis" because
2: it's interesting. So one of the common things people sort of like are thankful for when i talk to them mm-hmm. is um the connections that's mentioned a lot so connecting them with uh other students in their field and supervisors um another thing that some of like our biggest success stories i guess mention is um mm. sometimes we've connected people with like research internships or like research organizations that they might not have heard of before and that has like often been okay.
0: quite that's profound
2: cool. in shaping sort of the research they do and like yeah, like has had like a huge impact sort of on their research trajectory. Um and then the other thing people mm-hmm. often mention is just like the confidence that they are doing the right thing. So especially I guess more for the PhD students, it's it's tough. It's yeah. really tough out there. And like it is tough. The affirmation that like your research matters, we believe in you, you can improve it in these small ways. Uh lots of people have said has been pretty beneficial. Yeah.
0: It's interesting because it, it, it does you know the PhD specifically can feel very lonely, and it does feel to me like 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 people who end up working with you guys and and being coached by you they end up having a fa- like a PhD family and 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 I, it's funny I just uh, I, I just started this section called the PhD dojo not so long ago, and I actually proposed a concept uh, and and I called it the PhD village that that if people you needed to have you, you you shouldn't go it alone as a phd student you should have a, a network of different people mentors uh, people for your you know mental health you know uh, safety net etc cetera, etc cetera. and it feels that you, you guys are somehow providing this this type of village concept which which i really love because i don't know if uh, if you have any uh, any uh, we haven't talked about this, but I don't know if any of your coaching has to do with uh, mindset and my, and um, mental health. But you know, especially in the PhD, mental health is an issue. It's it, it's it's not that it can be an issue. It's it's known that that there's challenges there, and uh, I, I wonder if if you could get metrics on the effect of your coaching on the mental health of people who who work with effective thesis. as as students. Is, that, is it something you've explored? No. <laughs> um,
1: I don't think we've explored like analyzing the metrics, but the idea that we can support students in terms of mental health in some way, it's, it's a tough one to like sort of do because there's a few things that like, we've been thinking about. I think I've been doing a bit of thinking is that uh, we are not mental health professionals ourselves. So we don't want to sort of give advice that might not be correct or lead it in the wrong way for students. But during our coaching itself, there's a few things that across the board of the coaches and a few things that you'll see with PhD students who come in with some sort of mental struggle, like a few lines that I will end up repeating, which is true to most of my students and they'll realize is one is I'll always be telling them you are not alone it's not only you going through this and that community is sort of trying to figure and bridge that gap i hope as we start to manage this community on a different platform and grow that a little bit more and another uh really common one is the imposter syndrome one that you sort of mentioned earlier it's uh how i usually try to like explain to them like there's a couple of things i would say like Personally, when I'm doing my PhD and I have imposter syndrome quite a bit, I would like be when I listen to podcasts or I think about uh, who's going through imposter syndrome. And I realize like you have to be at a PhD level to like or at a level where you are actually trying to achieve something that you're going through imposter syndrome. So I feel like the fact that you're going through imposter syndrome is in itself an achievement.
0: It's funny, I I said this not so long ago in one episode. I said, it means that you're part of the club now. That's what it means. (laughs) So funny.
1: (laughs) So when I look at it in a positive, it's sort of like a bit more like, okay, so if, if it was someone who's not going through this stress, then probably like they're trying to do something else. And maybe this means that what I'm doing is right for me. If I'm not feeling it, maybe I'm doing it wrong. You know.
0: That's it. It's, it's it's because you're you're getting challenged that you get these these feelings. The thing is, once they get too too invasive and and crippling, that's where where when you need to tackle them more. But I I didn't want to ask whether you guys were were you were treating or you know were giving mental health advice but i'm pretty sure the feeling i'm getting is that you must have a positive impact when you say i we are, people feel that their confidence is increased well confidence goes with some positive uh, energy in terms of mental health that's that's where i was getting at now a question like that uh, what what piece of information that you give students you are you most surprised that they find useful
1: when i when i think about it like especially in terms of applying for research opportunities or applying for things one of the things students like to do or even like proposing this research topic to a supervisor one of the things they like students will do is like um say it's not going to work like i'm going to get rejected from it and this is something that happens more often than not and so what i try to tell them is like it's not your job to reject that's a very good one the person who's going to reject let them do their job you do your job of applying (laughs) (laughs) so don't do their job for them and like that's usually something that's useful and like uh interesting to sort of give as an advice i think yeah
0: i really love that and 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 myself you know i Go, having gone through the the the, the imposters in the imposter phenomenon like we were talking about i'm sure that i i have exclude i have uh rejected myself out of thing rejected myself yes out of things in the past and i, I would have loved to had someone tell me who, look it's not your job to reject yourself i love it i really really love it it's really a really good one and uh if if whoever's uh, if you're listening yeah don't reject yourself out of things if if somehow you feel that you should apply for something, or that you uh, that this opportunity you might you know you might uh, uh, deserve to to like jump on it, you deserve or you just feel you know uh, um, the the urge to jump on an opportunity, yeah, ju- jump on it. If you get rejected, well, someone will have that job. Don't do it yourself. I love it. I really really love it. <laughs> now, one thing we haven't talked about is the exceptional research award and we're getting to the end of the interview and I, I really want to to talk about this because we've talked about how it's kind of a community how it's international how um you know people are receiving coaching but here now it feels like you are also kind of uh trying to motivate people to, to be at their best through another uh, another uh kind of um I don't know if it's, it's an event per se but through another mechanism which is this exceptional research award does one of you want to talk about it?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So um uh it's available to undergraduates and master's students and they can submit their theses or uh yeah, other sort of like relevant research. Um and basically the reason we made it was to try and motivate people to sort of stay on track with the Recommended research directions that we think can be really impactful. Um, and yeah, uh, basically, as a motivator and also to recognize um, some of the great research that our students do. Um, if you're interested in submitting your paper, you have until the 1st of September of this year, which is 2022. And if you go on our website, org, you can find out more about what our recommended research directions are. <laughs> um but yeah i mean sort of one of the reasons it came about is a former student said that a similar uh, research award in a different sort of field had been really motivating to them and we were like oh great you know someone says they find this motivating let's see if we can help motivate our students so yeah
0: and and can you can you what the what's the premise of the uh, it's really just the thesis so if you have like you say there's some undergrads that have some the sort of thesis that that you need to do at the end mm-hmm. it's really to to so the thesis will be evaluated or there's a, a pitch or uh, is there is there a, a live aspect to it or or is it really just the um, the the written work
2: it's it's really just the the written thesis so um yeah it's sort of submitting it and also to note that if it's you can get it translated as well like but not just uh, accepted.
0: very cool and now uh, you you were mentioning staying on track and um you know because you're coaching people at such different levels um and i imagine that there's when they're more in undergrad mass undergrad and masters they might be off track but uh, get get late in their you know timelines etc once you get to the phd you might get people that if they feel that they're lost if they have these uh, imposter uh, feelings they might want to quit this is something that that uh, maybe you dev ha- have dealt with have you helped people kind of figure out should i or should i not quit because qu- quitting or or just saying okay this is this is not for me anymore it's fine but it's um it's a hard it's a hard reflection to have within yourself it's also a hard conversation to have with peers and supervisors etc I'm I'm wondering if someone out there listening is in this moment of doubt. Do you do you have something that you can share to kind of help them in a the moment of maybe feeling um, a little bit uh, uncertain and afraid of taking maybe the wrong decision at this time?
1: Just before I answer that question, I want to say that if you apply for the prize, it doesn't mean you can't apply for coaching. You can also still apply for coaching. So, <laughs> and then. Um, your question is a really intriguing one I think um I it's it's such a tough one in the sense that I don't think as a coach I'm ever in a position where I tell someone to quit but I've had I have been in positions where students are going through really really tough situations with their supervisors and like have considered quitting and like I've had to like go through the situation with them and try to see what their options are and what they want to achieve. And so sort of like, instead of taking a, this is something I need to hold on to, it's more of a, how can you find ways to improve it? And if you've tried that and it it hasn't worked, then maybe it's better to go a different way. So I had one case where the student supervisor was not, doing a very good job as a supervisor and our supervisor guide so we have a guide that we've written on a how to select a supervisor we'll also write a section where it talks about um what should you expect from the supervisor as a student as a phd student you're not only expected to fulfill certain roles but your supervisor is also expected to fulfill certain roles so we we wrote that guide sort of to say if make sure your supervisor is meeting those expectations. And if they're not meeting those expectations, then there are usually mechanisms that you can carry out for this. And I would say like, these mechanisms are very different according to the university you're in. So you have to make sure you know what your university regulations are. And it's, it's tough internationally as well. So like sometimes you have one particular issue I've noticed with my students in Europe is that, funding is attached to their phd supervisor rather than the institution and so they the supervisor has a little bit more like power a little less check and balance as compared to where funding is attached to the institution itself and the supervisor can be changed so so that that actually affects the decision quite a lot for su- quite a few students and so like i make sh- i ask them to make sure they've checked all the rules and regulations on this to how it impacts their thinking, how they should, what expectations they can have from their supervisors in that situation, and at the end of the day, um, you're you're considering that. And then there's a few things I've suggested in the past. So one of them is like, if you're feeling that one supervisor is not doing your job and you're feeling a bit stuck, maybe the first line of defense is like, try to look and see if you can find a co-supervisor. And maybe that would be helpful to have another supervisory sort of situation where someone else is also providing that uh support that you need that you're not getting from their first supervisor. And maybe that balance can work. And if that doesn't work, then you're trying to start to consider the more serious questions. Personally, and this now is not from a coaching perspective, but from my own PhD. I try not to look at my PhD as something that's four years long. I look at it as like I'm gonna test whether i like it still every year and if it's not working for me i'm not attached to the title if i if i like decide okay it's i've learned enough from it and this is this is all i can get and after this is just too much stress in my life and i can maybe achieve something in a different way and still have a fulfilling life that's creating an impact i'm going to do it that way instead so
0: i think that's a very healthy and a very very sound reflection and i think uh I think it's a good message to send out and leaving a phd that's hurting you in in any way it could be mental health it could be you know hurting your social life it could, it could you know in, it could be it could express itself in different ways it's not uh, what I what I want to say is leaving uh, the project is not uh, it's not a failure it's it's reorientation you have tested it you've tried it your mind your body is telling you it's not the right thing for you it's fine. People have left their PhDs and have had ex- extremely productive and inspiring, and 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 effect you know and 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 impactful lives after. I really really agree.
1: When you're looking at it as a failure, and that's one thing a lot of people struggle with, is then speaking it out loud. So just talk like if it's your friends or if it's during coaching. Saying it once will sort of help you. Come and accept that it's not. It's okay to be talking about it. It's okay to be thinking about it. It's not wrong, and that's maybe like quite a barrier sometimes. And I try to say like, talking is more helpful than people think. So don't hold it in and think you're alone in the situation.
0: Yeah, I agree. Again, having a village is very, very important. The, the the having the PhD, especially the PhD, which is a very long endeavor and can be very testing don't go it alone, because it can be really, really tough. Look, uh, we're going to the really the end of the interview. And uh, my feeling after talking with you guys is first, I wish I had had something like, uh, like effective thesis when I was just launching into into mine, because uh, it looks like it's kind of a holistic (laughs) that you get, you know, you get help in many different ways, that really, really kind of, to me, seem to the, it, it's logical to expect that it improves the the outcomes, or at least your experience of living through this experience of, you know, undergrad, uh, masters, uh, PhD. Uh, if someone, if two two final questions, can you one of you share for the for those who are just listening, where you can be found uh, in terms of URL, in terms of social media?
2: Yeah, so it's uh, www.effectivethesis.org, effective with an e. Uh, and uh, look for us on Twitter with Effective Thesis, um, and also on Facebook, I think, and Instagram. Yep. But yeah, Twitter is the place where you should find our updates. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, if if some people who are listening already done their PhD, already done their Master's Thesis, and they want to join Effective Thesis to offer coaching, is that, are you guys looking for people? And if so, how do they reach out to you the same way?
2: Yeah. Uh, so we're always looking for more volunteer coaches. Um, if you go on our website, effectivethesis.org, you'll see a uh, getting involved banner. Click on that and you'll find our email addresses and uh, more info as well about different ways you can join us. And you should join us, it's a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: Well, and and it's such a positive mission, and uh, I, I think um, you know. Ever since I started Papa PhD, I've met so many people who want to give back. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure people. There are people out there who'd be glad to be part of a mission, and of a and and of what you guys are doing. Yeah. So Isabel, Dev, it's been really a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for having reached out and for for being here today uh i i really believe in your project i hope people are going to contact you you know first I'm, i hope people are going to uh if they need coaching reach out to you for that but if people are out there who because i in the in the papa phd let's say community there's people who are already at another stage but who could give back um surely i i, I really wish that uh, that some of them reach out to you and and uh, and go uh, reinforce your ranks and uh, and make this grow more and more it's it's been really a pleasure thank you
2: cool yeah thanks so much for having us
1: (laughs) thank you so much david it's really a pleasure and um, i really love this phd village concept so
0: thanks for listening to another episode of the papa phd podcast Head over to PapaPhD.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.